Hello and welcome to today's episode of Narratives in Grace. This is your host Caleb Barrett. Our episode today is a message that I preached on January 19th, 2020 on the preeminence of Christ. So we'll focus on who Christ is and why he is above all things. Thank you for joining us today and I pray that this message is a blessing to everyone that hears it. Good morning, church. It is good to be with all of you this morning, albeit a little bit sad as we say goodbye to the pinners that I love that, I, that we are part of a church that literally lays hands on those that, that depart from us for whatever reason. Um, but as I said last week, if you were here, um, we shouldn't just be praying for and praising our ministry, but we should be praying for and praising other ministries. And I'm so excited to see what the Pinners will do at their next church and the churches after that, and maybe they'll end up back here someday. But I'm excited to pray for and praise those ministries. Um, but before we get into the passage this morning, for all of the kids that have their parents' permission, you can follow Pastor Dennis up to Children's Church. So we're continuing this week in the uh, letter of, to the Colossians. We're going to be looking at, uh, continuing in chapter 1, looking at verses 15 through 23. Um, but before we, we get into that, this passage, I've studied this particular passage a lot over the past several years. I've, I've read it time and time again, and this started uh, when about three or four years ago, I posted on Facebook, for anyone that doesn't know, my my concentration in my master's was composition. That's, I'm a composer, I conduct, but my primary thing is composition, um, and I was just looking for a new text to set a song to. I just posted on Facebook, hey, if anyone's got something good, send it my way. Uh, I didn't pose that it needed to be sacred or se uh, secular. I didn't pose that I wanted it to be scripture or non-scripture. I just said I wanted a good text that had a good message, and I got a lot of great things. A few of them I have set since then, others I've been waiting for. But this is one that I think was the most significant to me. Uh, it was specifically verses 15 through 20, and it was posted by uh, Pastor Aaron White, who was one of the associate pastors at Naomi's home church. Uh, he's also the pastor that married us. He's the pastor that inadvertently redirected me from just straight music ministry to worship ministry and studying what worship truly is and what the scriptures say about what worship is. And I don't think he knows the impact that he had on uh, me in that way. But he said I should set this text. But I found this text to be so significant that I, just, I couldn't. I couldn't do it justice. I've read it so many times I can't count, and I've read it in probably most English translations um, just trying to find a way to set it well, and maybe after studying this and proclaiming it this morning, I will take another shot at it. But this passage, in particular, 15 through 20, but really through 23, is one of the most powerful descriptions of the person of Christ and who Christ is. But before we go to the Word, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for all that you do. We thank you for everything that you do that we see and we don't see. And we just ask that this morning as we go into this text and study your word, 
that you will show us your meaning above all else, that your truth will come through my words that I don't get in your way, but that your spirit proclaims who you are. And I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as I said, it'll be Colossians 1, 15 through 23. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning, it'll also be on the screen. Paul wrote, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That is, in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of, the fle- of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Thanks be to God. And I think just from that reading, we can see what this this passage is saying about who Christ is. But to really understand what Paul is saying and why he's saying it, we need to know a little bit of the background and what was happening in Colossia. Um, and I talked about some of this last week, specifically that this Paul was letter was written by Paul. There we go. That's right, order of words. Um, to this church to correct an error in teaching, to correct a false teaching, a heresy, but also to encourage them. And we see that in this passage uh, pretty much sums that up, but then he continues on in the letter um, through the four chapters. But the teaching in particular was a brand of Gnosticism, uh, of Jewish Gnosticism. So they considered themselves Christians, but they, they weren't. They were Christians because they referenced Christ, and that was pretty much the end of what they looked like in terms of Christian uh, belief or in Jewish belief. And one of the most significant issues in Gnosticism, which was a heresy that existed about until this, the second century, and it kind of has popped up here and there, but it, it only existed in a major way until about the second century, was that they believed that the physical world was bad. Everything in the physical world was bad, and that the spiritual world is good, and certain people are born with a special wisdom and a special knowledge, and that made them special, and therefore they were saved because of this special knowledge that they had. Now, we know that our physical world is fallen, but that doesn't mean that the physical is evil because God created us in this way for a reason, and it wasn't bad until it fell. But this heresy led to false teachings about Christ in particular. And it went in different ways with different groups, but one way was saying that Christ couldn't be God because he was physical, therefore... He can't be good because he's evil. At least in part, he's evil. On the other side, it, 
that some said that he was spiritual. He wasn't an actual physical being. But we know for the truth of Christ that is proclaimed here, he had to have been God incarnate, physical, born of a virgin. But this also led the church to angel worship, that they worshiped the angels because those were the spiritual beings. They worshiped them above the physical Christ. And obviously, these are things that would need to be corrected. And one of the first points that Paul makes in this letter is that great or small, everything was created and is sustained by him, through him, and for him. And we see the word preeminent. Uh, if you have the ESV or a few different translations, that's the, the title of this section is the preeminent Christ. But it's important to really know what that word means. And it means to be surpassing all others or very distinguished in some way. Now we need to know that God isn't just preeminent, but he is the preeminent one. He is the greatest surpassing everything. He is the only one like him. God in three persons, God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the creator. We are creation. There is nothing else like him, including the angels. They are creation just as we are. He isn't just very distinguished. He is the distinguished one. But Paul deals with this heresy showing who Christ is as the king in breaking this into two sections. We see that in verses 15 through 17, he is showing that Christ is preeminent over the physical creation, that he is the image of the invisible God, that he is the firstborn of all creation, for by him things were created, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. There is nothing in this world that he is not king over. Everything was created for him. And this includes every kingdom, every ruler, every governor, every king. Nothing comes close to matching Christ's kingliness. He is the king of king and the, lords of, the lord of lords. And it says he is the king over the things that you see and he's the king over the things that you don't see. And it doesn't matter what kind of throne somebody sits on. He sits on a mightier throne still. And like I said, this is also important to remember that it was created for him. It wasn't created because he needed us. He, God, uh, in all three persons, is completely content in and of himself. But he created us in the physical world to glorify himself because he is the God. He is worthy of all worship and of all glory. But then Paul continues in verses 18 through 20 and shows Christ's preeminence over the spiritual kingdom. He is the head of the body of the church, the set apart. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and that he reconciles. And this the way that this is broken into the two sections is because of the Gnostic heresy of the physical being evil and the spiritual being good. He is saying right from the beginning, the physical is not evil, but he's king over it. The spiritual isn't any good, more good than the physical in its true purpose and its true nature, 
but he's still king over that. And in this, we need to remember that there is no problem too great for God. There is nothing that we can go from here and experience that is so horrific that God can't see us through it. He knows everything that's happening. He's glorified by everything good happening, even a beautiful drive to work. He's glorified in that. He's glorified by you going to work every day, whether it's a job you love or a job you hate. He's still glorified if you serve him well in that, if you proclaim his name in that. But there is nothing too problematic for him to handle. There's nothing that surprises him. And I think one of the best examples of this that I have seen in my life is uh, my brother-in-law's father. His name is, was Greg Bomsta. And about three or four years ago, he was diagnosed with cancer, a, a, a severe uh, form of cancer. And he was one that always worked hard for his family. And that was almost part of the problem because he waited to go to the doctor, didn't think it was a big deal, and needed to get things done to make sure his family was well taken care of. But even in this news, their response was having faith in God that God would, had this in control and no matter what the outcome, God already knew and God would be glorified through it. And over the next year, he went through treatments and the cancer seemed to go away, almost miraculously disappearing. And they praised God for it. But then about six months later, the doctors did another test and found that it had come back and was much more significant than it was the first time. And Greg's response wasn't being angry or upset or fearful. Maybe for his family that he was going to leave behind. But for himself, he knew what was happening. He knew that God had it in control. And he knew where he was going. Naomi and I got to see him about a month before he passed away. And he was in, in almost joyful spirits. He knew where he was going. He knew that he was going to see Christ. He knew that he was going to be with his Father in heaven. And he knew that God was going to take care of his family when he was gone. And while it has been difficult for the family, they still have faith in Christ knowing that where, they know where their father is and they know that they will see him again someday. But this just shows that Greg, in all aspects of this, had faith in Christ that he knew that his God was going to, that his God was God over all this problem and that he would get to be with his father. But this passage also emphasizes that Christ is the image of the invisible God. And this is a significant thing when we think about Exodus 20 verses 4 through 6. So Exodus 20 is the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. The second commandment says that we are to make no carven image or graved image of any likeness of God. We're not to use any physical object to worship God. That's why even though we have a cross, we don't worship the cross. It's a reminder. It's not an object that we worship. And the reason given for why they aren't to worship a physical thing is because nothing can represent God correctly. We see this as well in the, the Gospel of John when we're told that uh, God is to wor be worshipped in spirit and truth because he is spirit. 
We can't use any physical thing to worship him because there is no physical thing that can represent that spiritual nature. There is no image that can properly express all of who God is except Jesus. Jesus is the image of God. There is no one else, there is nothing else that is anything comparable to be the image of God. He is the only thing, the only one that appropriately reflects the character and nature of God. And now we need to remember that we are created in God's image. We're image bearers, but he is the image of God. And as we go through our life, we need to remember that that all humans are created in the image of God. But we as believers hold a special responsibility because we know that we're the image of God, where the lost doesn't know what that means. We're to show them what that means. We're to show that the love of Christ and to reflect who he is. But we need to know that we're just imitations of that. First Corinthians 11.1 1 says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And this is talking about an action indeed, not in a physical manner, but in action indeed we are reflecting that image. But we need to know that we're just a reflection, we're just a shadow. One example that I like of this that I have seen is in the Chronicles of Narnia. So if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the things that you learn is that Narnia is a shadow of heaven. It's a representation of heaven. And that our world here is simply that, where it's a shadow of what heaven is going to be because it is a fallen creation. It was in that good nature that God created it in. But then through the sin of Adam and Eve, sin entered the world and it fell and became a simple shadow. But now we're to walk knowing that we're just a shadow of the glory of God, of that image, that we're just made in the image, but we're to work toward showing that image well and looking to Christ who is the image. And the first part of this chapter or this section that we've looked at so far, verses 15 through 20, tells us who Christ is. But the rest of the section, 21 through 23, says what Christ has done. And namely, it's that he has reconciled us to himself. In our sin, we were alienated. We were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Since the fall and original sin, we're alienated from God. We're separated from him. We cannot come to him because there is a void, an uncrossable void, because of this alienation. And our natural tendency is to sin. And our natural state, when given the choice between sin and doing the will of God, we will always choose to sin. Our hearts are naturally depraved. We see this in the Psalms as well, when the psalmist is calling to God to create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me. Because it is only through God's mercy that we can have a clean heart. There is nothing that we can do ourselves to cleanse it. And we see this as we go out, that many are hostile to even the idea of the gospel. 
and we naturally do evil. And it seems harsh to say that about the, the loss in our community that, no, there's somebody that does so much worse than they do. But anything done against God's will is evil. One definition of sin is to do things against the will of God. And that is evil. Whether it's big or small. But we know that through Christ's physical death, we were reconciled. And by his resurrection, sin was defeated. And we need to know this as we go out and do outreach to the lost, to our community. Whether it's through the, the Who's Your One uh, initiative we're taking or just going out to Milani Town Center and talking to people at the grocery store or, as I always mention, Starbucks because I, I might be there once or twice a week. Um, but that in all of those things, when we reach out to the lost, there are going to be those that are hostile to the gospel. And they may not act in a way that we think of as hostile. They may not act in anger against us. But anything turning away from God is hostile. Hostile to him. But we need to be encouraged that it's not our responsibility to convert somebody. It is our responsibility to share. It is our responsibility to show who Christ is. A number of years ago, Naomi and I were on a, a mission trip through Europe, a music mission trip with our college choir, and uh, we were in Spain for, for an extended time, and we, did a lot, we worked with a lot of different missionaries. I think I mentioned one of those missionaries a few weeks ago. But another group that we worked with in Madrid had us do a mini concert in a town center, and it looked a lot like what I picture uh, the preaching of Paul in, in town centers to be like. But they had us sing a few songs and it gathered a crowd and one of the missionaries got up and, and gave a, a short sermon, a short witness to all of those that would listen. And they, stop, they stopped and stayed and listened for a minute, but the moment he mentioned Jesus, they're gone. About 80% of the people left almost immediately. The moment they heard the name Jesus, they, they, had nothing, they wanted nothing to do with it. And those that stayed, we got to talk to and interact, and they seemed to have stayed because they were interested in who we were. But again, as soon as they realized that we were believers as well, we weren't just hired by this group to attract people, they even more left. Very few listened at all. And we see this in testimony of missionaries, that people are naturally going to be hostile to the gospel. It is rare for somebody to never have heard the gospel, hear it the first time, and come to faith. Now, hear me say it is rare. God does amazing things. But there are missionaries that go to certain parts of the world, and they spend their whole time on that field, their whole career in that place, with next to no conversions. But the missionaries that I have heard that have experienced that, they say, but that's not my job. My job isn't to get people to convert. My job is to plant seeds. And my prayer is that the next generation will come and water those seeds, and then we will start to see God growing those seeds. And we need to know that in this passage, we see that every one of us was alienated. Every one of us was hostile to the gospel, and it is only through Christ softening our hearts that we come to him. And we know that many in Colossae, as in many of the other towns that these epistles went to, it was going to be easier. The, the people of these places saw it as easier to just walk away from the faith. 
And that's part of why many of these epistles were written, to encourage them to keep moving, including uh, the book of Hebrews was written for that purpose as well. It would be so easy for them to walk away because believing in Christ and following the gospel came at a high cost socially and economically. And how much easier would it be to just give in to one of these groups that was respected so that they could get their status back? But Paul tells them to hold fast to the truth that the gospel has been proclaimed to all creation since the beginning. And if we hold fast to the faith, we will receive the eternal reconciliation. If we have faith through Christ, we have this blessed assurance. We must persevere. But the thing is, you may have heard the, the, the idea of the perseverance of the saints, but the thing is we need to have faith and know that it isn't just the perseverance of the saints, but it's the preservation of the saints. John seventeen twelve says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which, was, which you have given to me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. We see in this that Christ protects us. He sustains us. And that doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility. We do have a responsibility, but our responsibility isn't just to persevere and get through it, but our responsibility is to hold fast to Christ. And as we hold fast to Christ, he will hold fast to us and he will protect us. He will protect us from all the trials and tribulations that we will go through. And we see that in this passage, that is who Christ is. That even though he is above all other things, he comes down He came down to earth for his sheep. He came down for the lost so that we might be saved. And we see that in the parables. When the the sheep wanders, Christ will go for them. He will come and find them to protect them. He will hold on to us, but we must hold on to him. We must seek him. But this passage says so much about who Christ is, both in his glory and majesty, but also as a savior. That we know that even as amazing and as great, as unbelievable as he is, he protects us. He has reconciled us to his saving faith, to God the Father. And in this passage, we learn who God is and who Christ is. He is the image of God, the one and only image of God. That we bear the image, we were created in the image, but he is the image. We know that he is above all creation. All creation, physical and spiritual, everything visible and invisible. No matter how mighty, he is above all things. He is the eternal sustainer. He sustains us. He sustains his creation. He protects us. He helps us to get through the trials and tribulations we go through. He is the head of the body. And thanks be to God for that. That we can have faith that the church universal isn't led by fallen man, but it is led by Christ. 
that we have faith in Him. And as long as we follow the Scriptures and pray and seek true wisdom and seek to serve Him for His glory, He will guide the church well, and we know that He will keep it firm and moving forward. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first resurrected. And in this, we know that we get to have that same assurance that because he was born from the dead, sin was defeated. He is the divine one. But most importantly, I think for us, he is the reconciler. And this is important because it's not that we reconciled with him. We came to a deal and, and we apologized and now we're good. No, it's that he came to us and reconciled us to him. Even though he had no reason to, even though we do nothing but go against him, he came and reconciled with us. He brought us back to him. He brought us from that alienation into fellowship. And I think that's important as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, this afternoon, that that it is because of this reconciliation that we get to experience this, that we get to come into communion with our God and Father, our Creator. And we need to know that we are saved through His grace and power alone, and that through this, He will sustain us. And I was re- as I was reading through this passage this past week and meditating on it and studying it, one of the things that came to mind was uh, college when... Uh, I took a philosophy class. Uh, I am very interested in philosophy, as anyone that has talked to me for more than probably about 10 minutes knows. I'm very interested in philosophy. I was told to take philosophy with a particular professor, and his name was Cliff. Uh, He went by Cliff. He wouldn't go by Dr. Cliff, Dr. Williams, nothing. It was Cliff. Uh, Naomi and I both had this class at different times, but it was a simple intro to philosophy. But it was so impactful to both of us that whenever we're in Illinois, we still see uh, Cliff. We get together and have lunch with him, even though each of us only had this one class with him. But one day we were talking about um, one of the ideas in many groups of agnostics. So agnosticism is a very broad category, but a lot of agnostics will talk about the clockmaker idea. And that idea is basically saying that God is like a clockmaker, a clock uh, uh, that he made the clock, he wound it, and he let it go. That God, there is a God, and he created us, but then he kind of just left us to be, and that there is no personal God. But the thing that we need to know is that we can make this remote, we can make it so it can work, but if I'm not holding it, it just falls. And in the same way, Christ made us, Christ got us ready turned us on, made us go, but without him holding us, we'll do nothing but fall. And as we go from here, we need to know that we have this assurance, that we have that, this blessing that God the Father, the creator of all, sent Christ to die, Christ who is above all things, so that we may be saved and that we may go out and share this truth with the lost in our community. Let us go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Dear Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for everything that we can see and everything that we don't see. We know that you are the great one, that you are above all else. 
And we just pray that as we continue this time of worship and as we go out from here, that we remember who you are. That we remember that you are the, the image of God. That you are the great one. You are the ruler of all. But that in that power, you came to us and reconciled us to yourself so that we, we may be saved. And we thank you for all that you do. In your name we pray. Amen. episode of narratives and grace i pray that this message was a blessing if there are any questions about the message or if there are any needs or suggestions or uh, requests for topics uh, you could email us at pastor at mbaptist.org uh, if you have any prayer requests you can email us at prayer at mbaptist.org and uh, you can really send any to either one Myself and Pastor Dennis are always monitoring those two emails, and we want to be in contact with you. If there's anything with the podcast, just put podcast in the subject line. We want to hear from you. Uh, I pray that today, the rest of today is a blessing to each and every one of you.